This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. I call this meeting to order. Welcome to meeting number 92 of the House of Commons Standing Committee on Industry and Technology. Today's meeting is taking place in a hybrid format pursuant to the standing orders. Pursuant to the order of reference of Monday, April 24, 2023, the committee is resuming consideration of Bill C-27, an act to enact the Consumer Privacy Protection Act, the Personal Information and Data Protection Tribunal Act, and the Artificial Intelligence and Data Act, and to make consequential and related amendments to other acts. It's taken a long time, years in fact, but privacy reform has finally made it to the House of Commons Standing Committee on Industry and Technology. Hearings on Bill C-27, the Privacy and AI Reform Bill, are now in full swing. And last week, I appeared alongside several academic friends and colleagues, including Brenda McPhail and Professors Teresa Skaza, Vivek Krishnamurthy, and Colin Bennett. In addition to all being former guests on this podcast, each brought insightful analysis and proposals to improve the bill. I had multiple exchanges with MPs on a wide range of issues, including the process leading up to the bill, political party privacy, artificial intelligence, and the proposed privacy tribunal. This week's Law Bites podcast takes you inside the hearing room for my opening statement, followed by exchanges with MPs from all four parties. We begin with my opening statement. Uh, Good afternoon. As you heard, my name is Michael Geist, a law professor at the University of Ottawa, where I hold the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, and I'm a member of the Centre for Law, Technology and Society, here in a personal capacity representing only my own views. I'd like to start by noting that the very first time I appeared before a House of Commons committee was in March 1999 on Bill C-54, which would later become PIPIDA. I must admit, I don't think I really knew what I was doing at that appearance. But my focus at the time was, uh, was on whether or not the law would provide sufficient privacy protections for those just coming online who had little background or knowledge of privacy, security, uh, or even the Internet for that matter. I highlighted some of the shortcomings of the bill, including poorly defined consent standards that would lead to over-reliance on implied consent, broad exceptions on use or disclosure of personal information, and doubts about enforcement urged the committee to strengthen the bill, but I have to say that I didn't fully appreciate that the policy choices being made back then would last for decades. I start with this brief trip down memory lane because I feel we find ourselves in the same position or a similar position today with policy choices on things like artificial intelligence and emerging technologies that will similarly last for far longer than we might care to admit. It's for that reason that I think it's important to emphasize the need to get it right rather than get it fast. I often hear the minister talk about being first, at least on AI, and I must admit I don't understand why that is a key objective. Indeed, if you leave aside the fact that the core of at least the privacy part of this bill was introduced in 2020 and languished for years, we now find ourselves in a race to conduct hearings that I don't totally get. We've got an AI bill where there's a major overhaul with no actual text available yet, And witnesses seemingly have to pick between privacy and AI, creating the risk of limited analysis all around. I think we need to do better. I'll focus these remarks on privacy, but to be clear, the AI bill and the proposed changes raise a host of concerns, including the need for independent enforcement and the high-impact definitions that puzzlingly include search and social media algorithms. 
The other lesson from the past two decades is that you can seek to create a balanced statute, and I know there's been a lot of talk about balance, but the playing field will never be balanced. It's always tilted in favor of business, many of whom have the resources and expertise to challenge the law, challenge complaints, challenge the privacy commissioner. Most Canadians don't stand a chance. That's why we must craft rules that seek to balance the playing field too, with broad scope of coverage, better oversight and audit mechanisms, and tough penalties to ensure that the incentives align with better privacy protection. How do you do that? Given my limited time, five quick ideas. First, and this is going to pick up where Professor Bennett ended, we must end the practice of do what I say, not what I do when it comes to privacy. I think it's unacceptable in 2023 for political parties to exempt themselves from the standards they expect all businesses to follow. Indeed, you can't credibly argue that privacy is a fundamental right and then claim that it should not apply in a robust manner to political parties. Second, the addition of language around fundamental right to privacy is welcome, but I think it should also be embedded elsewhere so that it factors more directly into the application of the law. For example, as former Commissioner Tarian noted, it could be included in Section 12 sub 2 among the factors to consider in an appropriate purposes test. Third, the past 20 years has definitively demonstrated that the penalties matter for compliance purposes and are a critical part of the balance. The bill features some odd exclusions. There's penalties for elements of the appropriate purposes provision in Section 12, but not the main provision limiting collection use and disclosure for appropriate purposes. In the crucial Section 15 provision on consent, there are no penalties around the timing of consent or for using an implied consent within the legitimate interest exception. The bill says such practice is not appropriate, whatever that means. It's an odd turn of phrasing in a piece of legislation. But the penalty provision doesn't apply regardless. Fourth, the committee has already heard debate about the appropriate standard of anonymized data, and I get the, I get the pressure to align with other statutes. But I'd note that Section 6 sub 6 specifically excludes anonymized data from the Act, Yet I think we want to ensure that the Commissioner can play a data governance role here with potential audits or review, particularly if a lower standard is adopted. Finally, fifth, provided we ensure that the Privacy Tribunal is regarded as an expert tribunal that will be granted deference by the courts, I'm, I'm okay with creating another layer of privacy governance. I appreciate the concerns that this may lengthen the timeline for resolution of cases, but the metric that counts isn't how fast the Privacy Commissioner can, doubt, can address an issue, but how fast a complainant can get a binding final outcome. And given the risks of appeals and courts treating cases on a de novo basis, existing timelines can go far beyond the Commissioner's decision, and a tribunal might actually help. Thanks for your attention. I look forward to your questions. First up was Conservative MP Ryan Williams who asked a range of questions, emphasizing the issue of the fundamental right to privacy and the need to include it in the bill. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And after uh, eight years, eight long years, we've finally had privacy legislation in front of this committee. Of course, uh, we've heard from witnesses, it's been actually 24 years since we updated the last privacy legislation. And, and when we looked at this in the first reading in the House or second reading, uh, we really focused on what was missing in this bill. What was missing was listing privacy as a fundamental right. But then when we came to committee and we had witnesses lined up, the minister then added a bunch of amendments, and the amendments seemed to indicate that he was listening. But of course, 
Uh, we're not sure where we are because amendments will go in certain parts of the bill. Mr. Geist, thank you for your appearing today. Um, when we had the original copy of this, I understand you were part of uh, the original uh, iteration of this bill in Pipita 24 years ago. You don't look that old, sir. But uh, the minister came, he presented a bill, did not list privacy as a fundamental right, and then have these amendments. Did the minister break this bill? Well, I, I felt when the minister first came to committee and suggested a whole raft of changes with, and then indicated that the government was not prepared to provide the actual text of those amendments until clause by clause, to me that broke the hearings. Um, for myself, for my fellow witnesses, for the many witnesses to come, we follow closely the idea that you can come before a committee and comment intelligently when you don't have the actual text of the legislation. That means to me that that the that everybody's time is being wasted a little bit because you're you're basically commenting on an old bill rather than where things are headed. Uh, I'm glad that there are now some amendments there, but obviously we're carrying on. We don't have the specific language around the AIDA. And even on the, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, even around the issue of fundamental right to privacy, I think we can still do better. And just for the record, sir, do you believe that privacy should be listed as a fundamental right in the first two sections of this bill? I do. I, I, I do. I, I mean, I think that, that that would provide clarity in terms of how it is interpreted, obviously, by the commissioner as well as by the courts and, and provides a strong signal from, from the legislative branch of the importance that it accrues to privacy. But as I mentioned, I, in many ways, respects, I think I'd love to see this in some core provisions that are ultimately going to serve as sort of the testing ground when there's analysis. When you make the determination, for example, is consent appropriate? Well, uh, or is there is it more even for? Is it the appropriate purpose? Well, that's where you can begin to bring in that privacy is a fundamental right because at that stage you're engaged a little bit in some of that balancing, rather than sort of that more overarching side, which it, it seems to me may come at a later date. A court's reviewing a decision: Did the commissioner take adequate account of the fact that privacy has that elevated status? Speaking of how important this is uh, for all sections. You were involved 24 years ago in the first generation. Sorry, I'm going to keep repeating that. Uh, but how hard is it, once we enact this legislation, to reverse that legislation or update it? Yeah, I, I, I must admit, I, I'm, I'm genuinely surprised at how hard it becomes. Um, I think part of it is because, as you will see throughout the course of these hearings, you end up with people coming from all different perspectives. This isn't a big political winner, I don't get the sense. I think it's critically important legislation. Um, but it's not the thing that is seen as necessarily driving votes, and so it tends to slip. We've seen it with this legislation itself. So even with PIPIDA, with a mandatory five-year review, we got that first review after five years. It took years before those recommendations were acted on, and we have effectively never really seen an effective subsequent review since. So I think it, it's fairly clear that whatever choices get made now, we live with, you need to be prepared to say, we're comfortable that these will be the rules in 2035 or maybe even 2040. Uh, and that means, I think, doing your best to get it right, not doing your best to get it fast. So on that note, we have a third section here. It seems to be hastily put together. It seems that we, we didn't have pub public consultation. Is it, is it Canada's best interest to be first out of the gate on AI legislation? It's Canada's interest to get what is a critically important issue, appropriate regulation of artificial intelligence right. And the idea that we want to race ahead with no consultation, we saw the government do the same on the generative AI guardrails that were conducted 
privately in secret over the summer and then rushed out with practically no public discussion. This is just the, the wrong way to do something that I think all Canadians have an active interest in. And when we see some of the developments taking place around the world, it becomes essential that both in terms of the kinds of protections Canadians might get with AI systems, as well as some of the economic interests driven by adoption of AI, we want to ensure that I think we, we contribute to that global conversation and we sure, ensure that some of our rules are broadly consistent with where things are, are headed, provided that they meet the kind of standards that we're looking for. And in this instance, it's hard to figure out what the government is doing other than it raced out a sort of a skeleton piece of legislation, got criticized for the lack of consultation and, and the lack of detail, now says, OK, we'll provide more detail that makes it look a little bit more like Europe, but we don't even have the language on that yet either. I'm going to ask you a broad question, fundamental though. Who owns Canadians' data? Well, I think we, own, we, we as individuals, of course, ought to be the ones that own and certainly control our own data. That doesn't mean that we can't make decisions about how organizations use that information. But what it requires is legislation that ensures that we have that effective control, that it's informed, as you heard several witnesses talk about the problems with things like implied consent, uh, and that there are real penalties when when organizations run afoul of what they've committed to Canadians or run afoul to the law itself. Brian Massey, an NDP MP, had several questions about the creation of a privacy tribunal. I'd like to start with Mr. Geist here. Um, and with the Privacy Commission, one of the things that's proposed to change is the creation of a tribunal. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about that. Um, I have mixed emotions on it and, uh, and thoughts subsequent to that. And um, I've also seen recently what the tribunal has done to the Competition Bureau, uh, and I'm really worried that we could be in the same uh, boat as that. I was told by administrative um, uh, people from the department that that couldn't happen, uh, but others are now telling me it can happen. So I'm in this little bit of a vacuum of space here and would like your opinion on the, that situation. Sure, thanks for the question. I did highlight it in the opening remarks, but happy to engage in your right. When we look at what we just saw most recently, involving Roger Shaw, one could, well, it's understandable why people I think would be understandably skeptical about the creation of a tribunal that provides that kind of oversight. That said, I think one of the things that we have seen over the years is that because of the way the federal court treats privacy commissioner decisions on a de novo basis, so if there are appeals, they go to the court and the court then effectively starts from scratch. Um, you're faced with a situation where the, the it almost incentivizes challenging tough cases, because, and we've seen that, uh, because you get another, another chance at it. You know, creating a tribunal, provided it is uh, viewed from an administrative law perspective as an expert tribunal that's going to be granted some deference for, for the decision by follow-on courts, if it does go to courts, I think it has the potential in some ways to strengthen sort of the outcomes of that process because there is some of that deference. But that requires ensuring that the tribunal is genuinely viewed as an expert tribunal and properly constituted. The initial version of this bill uh, didn't go anywhere near there with just one privacy expert. We now have half. Finding ways to ensure that uh, I think that public interest is well represented on the tribunal and ensuring that it's got genuine expertise, I think does at least open the door to the prospect that it might provide some advantages, though I, I recognize why some would say, this is all, these are already lengthy processes. Let's just let the Privacy Commissioner handle it all. 
So we, uh, yes, let me just see if I got the summary of this right. So if we select and create a tribunal that's respected by the industry across the board, it might provide a better path to go forward versus, or if it's not, um, then it's going to lead for an opening to basically be uh, an initial test drive to see whether we bring things to court. I'm sorry, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to figure this out. Sorry, let me go, let me just... Yeah. It's not whether or not business respects the tribunal. I don't really yeah. care if business respects okay, the tribunal. Okay, fair enough. That's why I'm asking. Uh, I mean, I think, yeah. I think it should be properly constituted that it should recognize that it's a credible, uh, authoritative tribunal. But uh, the question isn't whether or not business respects it. It's whether or not courts respect it. Okay. Because yeah. what we want is courts to say the decision that comes out of the tribunal is one that they are prima facie going to say that they're going to respect that decision. At the moment, when the commissioner issues a decision, the, the courts are going to start from scratch. They have the ability to start from the beginning, which is why we see, let's say, in the case of Cambridge Analytica, it's already been referenced a couple of times today, we still have Cambridge Analytica before the Canadian courts because we've had the commissioner, then we've had a first court decision, now we've got an appeal ongoing. These are long processes, and the courts play out potentially somewhat differently than the administrative side for privacy itself. So it's more about having the process of the privacy commissioner and the tribunal better respected by courts, especially given the kinds of penalties that we're envisioning, because I think we can well assume that if the penalties are significant, we're going to see the organiza organizations facing those penalties uh, going on and appealing those decisions through the courts. Okay, so yeah, I've had a lot of confidence in the, the number of the last... Uh, Privacy commissioners we had, it's it, you know. So, but if, if the tribunal is going to be politically appointed, and if it's not respected by the courts, then there's then okay. I, I, I see what you're saying because their decision making capability and evaluation is going to be based upon the confidence of the process the groups go through for the complaint. Well, it, I, and I listen. I'm not an administrative law expert, yeah. but my the way that administrative law works is in terms of the deference that the courts may give to tribunals. Yeah. It is linked to the expertise of that tribunal. You see, let's say in the copyright context, and it doesn't mean that the decisions themselves are always followed. They're definitely not. But at least the starting point is that they recognize there has been expertise brought to bear. Um, whereas right now, even though I think we would all acknowledge the Privacy Commissioner has expertise, it's not viewed as that kind of independent tribunal, and thus the courts have taken the position that they have the ability to start looking at this case from the beginning. Conservative MP Brad Viss spoke passionately about the need for children's privacy and asked specifically about how it would be protected in the bill. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to our witnesses here today. Uh, I'm somewhat concerned about this bad bill before us today. Uh, bill, bill C-11, the Government of Canada had an opportunity to enshrine a fundamental right to privacy in children, to define what a minor is, uh, to define perhaps an age of consent, uh, to do a whole bunch of stuff to ensure that children were protected. That bill died on the order paper. Then we had Bill C-27 when this Parliament opened up again and the Minister again had an opportunity to enshrine a fundamental right to children, uh, to protect their privacy and some of the actions they may take online. Then the government had an opportunity to um, uh, define what sensitive information is, likely in the context of a child. Uh, they had an opportunity to define what a socially beneficial purpose was in the context of a child. The minister came before us to, uh, a few weeks ago, and he says, I have this bill. It's going to do so much work to protect children, but we have to amend it. 
Then we had to put a motion forward to get a copy of those amendments, and we're here today, and uh, I am not going to relent on this until we have more clarification, and I hear from as many witnesses as possible to ensure that children's rights are protected. Uh, so my, my question is open-ended. I guess I'll start with you, Mr. Mr. Geist. Uh, what clauses of the bill do you believe need to be amended uh, to ensure that... Uh, a child's fundamental right to privacy and their online actions are not used in a way that will compromise them as adults or at a future period of time in their life? Well, I'll, I'll give you a brief answer, but uh, Professor Krishnamurthy, who uh, is one of, one of the witnesses, has done studies and reports on this, and so he's probably best suited to, to answer some of, some of those particular questions. But I will say two things in, in response to, to your opening. First, to reiterate, I think the the, the general disappointment for many in terms of how the uh, the lack of prioritization of privacy over the last number of years, the bills, as you've mentioned, get introduced um, and then seem to languish. Glad that we're here now, but I, I'm inclined to agree with you that uh, I think the best way to ensure that you get the best time out of witnesses and the best kind of study is to ensure that is to reflect on legislation as the as it's intended by the government. And so if we're left with this amalgam of the bill plus comments about where things are headed, I think that's, um, that, that, that doesn't provide the kind of the best sort of study. Okay. In terms of minors specifically, I'll note Very one quickly, of the real please. concerns arises in terms of differing de definitions of minors, uh, province to province and the like. And so certainly one thing that we need to, I think, include within the legislation, I know other witnesses have highlighted it, is the need for some sort of consistent definition here so that we know there is that consistency of protection. Block MP Sebastian Lemire asked questions about government and political parties and was followed immediately afterward by Brian Massey, who this time focused on the various priorities in the bill. Mr. Geist, I'd like to discuss with you the about the data collected by the government. So... Is there an example there of a component we should be concerned about? Do we consider that the public sector is just as subject to this as the private sector with C-27? And can we ensure or, or could we find that we're sufficiently protected by what the government's doing? The, you know, the conventional way to look at government-related collection of data is through the Privacy Act lens which successive commissioners going back well before even the creation of PIPEDA have argued is insufficient and inadequate. And so government has consistently failed to hold itself to the same standard that it expects of the privacy commissioner. It, for whatever reason, privacy commissioners have... Can, well, we know the reason why privacy commissioners have regularly raised it, but it has rarely risen to the level of, of actual reform. In terms of the political parties, if, if the question is more around political parties and their potential application, because we've had several of the witness, witnesses raising this, as I say, I, you know, I mean, I think we can, if we're honest about it, it's pretty obvious why uh, we haven't, why they're not included, because political parties have grown addicted to access to that data. They value that data, and quite frankly, they fear that if they had to actually get the same kind of level of consent that they are expecting businesses to obtain from users, they wouldn't get that consent. And so it would put that data at risk. This highlights, I think, for me, really two things. One, that 
I just think it's so obvious that if you claim that there's a fundamental right to privacy and we're going to elevate the expectations on businesses, please put up the mirror and have that same expectation for yourselves as political parties. It also highlights, I think, the kind, why there are real challenges with the, with the law with respect to the private sector. Because just as political parties don't want to have any sort of limitations on the collection and use of the data outside of some, some bare-bones sort of legislation, so too for lots of businesses, who will also say, we're super innovative. We're acting in the, in the public interest. Well, we've got a legitimate interest. We know all the kind of language that comes out of this. Fundamentally, they don't want to have to ask for a, an actual informed consent because they know they might not get it. Um, and so we can see why you need to ensure in these rules that we hold those businesses to a higher standard. And I'd argue that we ought to be doing the same thing for political parties. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Massey. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And yeah, no, that's, uh, that's a critical aspect because we didn't do that on the do not call. Um, and I think that's uh, a, a serious void that uh, needs to be looked at. So I appreciate those words. If you were looking at this bill from our perspective in terms of if we're trying to make it work, and I know you have hesitations of kind of how we got here, what are the key components that you would suggest right now? And I know, sorry, sorry I missed your opening elements, but maybe you can build on some of that, um, what we really need to, to at the bare minimum get done. Yeah. Well, I guess I would start part of the problem that, that I see, and I think it's been echoed by some of the other witnesses who, who may want to chime in, is that this omnibus approach that has combined both privacy and AI fundamentally, I think, really impairs the ability to have an effective review of the legislation as a whole. I mean, we are unsurprisingly having much of our discussion on the privacy side, which, may, which I understand that's where the committee was driving, at least initially. But the AI rules are critically important, as we've said, that we don't even have the full text associated with them, and the implications are enormous. And so, to me, the starting point fix for this committee is to say this is not working the way it needs to work for the committee to do its job effectively. We want to either shelve the AI portion altogether for the, for the moment and either go back to the drawing board or say we're going to conduct, conduct two studies or two committees are going to conduct studies, perhaps Ethi gets involved. There's got to be some sort of mechanism where both of these different pieces of legislation get the kind of attention that they deserve. In terms of the privacy side, very quickly on this bill, I would say, listen, I've, I've highlighted, the, I've highlighted the, the political party side. I guess I would again emphasize that you know, we will hear, and you do hear from many of your witnesses, we need to be innovative. We can't be out of step with these things. And I have to say, you need to recognize that this is, to go, I guess, to go back to those hearings back in the 90s, we saw the same kind of the sky is falling if you legislate in this way. You saw the same kind of comments being made in Europe when the GDPR was being developed. The reality is businesses will adopt, or adapt rather, and they will adopt those rules and in many instances find competitive advantage for doing so. So I would urge you as you go through the bill, you need to be looking for where, where can it be strengthened, where are there exceptions, and we've heard today many of the kinds of exceptions that are problematic, but most fundamentally recognize that the lens that needs to be brought here is not one of the scare tactics of you're going to harm innovation in this country, it's because that's just the basic playbook on privacy rules. It's rather how can we ensure that we've got the best possible law looking a decade or two decades ahead. Conservative MP Rick Perkins asked me about the issue of privacy and web scraping of data. I quickly ask Mr. Geist about um, Dr. Skaza's uh, comment about uh, Section 51 and the ability 
to scrape data and use that publicly available information. I wonder if you would comment on that danger that this bill opens up. Well, I think, I, and I think Professor Skaza is exactly right. I mean, anyone who's been paying any sort of attention over the last five to ten years recognizes that what we once thought of is open and may be used. Oftentimes, we're talking about data that didn't have the appropriate consent in the first place, and certainly not necessarily the consents for the kinds of reuse that you start to see online. So, simply couching it as it's available so that you can use it without recognizing that many of those uses may be wholly different from what, even if there was consent obtained, and sometimes there may not have been, but even if there was consent, it may not be related to these new kinds of uses. So we've got to tread really carefully. Conservative MP Ryan Williams brought artificial intelligence regulation to the table, asking specifically about some of the government's stated intent for future changes to the bill around AI regulation. Mr. Geist, um, tell me a little bit about uh, the high-impact systems using search and local media, uh, comparing that to algorithms for search results. How does this bill address that and what changes would you make? Thanks uh, for the question. Well, technically speaking, the bill doesn't address it because we have the bill. What we do also now have, as you know, is uh, essentially a memo from the minister that highlights that the, that they they've begun to identify what they believe the high impact or what they intend to include within the high impact systems and as we just heard from professor krishnamurthy uh, the approach is to seek to regulate those and establish a number of kinds of regulatory frameworks around around those provisions now I think there is generally a consensus that it's appropriate to have rule sets around and necessary to have rule sets around uh, particularly where there are concerns around bias coming out of AI systems. Think of the use of AI in, in labor markets for hiring. Think about it in the health sector. Think about it in the, the financial sector. Think about it with law enforcement. There's a lot of places where we can easily identify potential risks, potential harms, uh, and the like. And so that's where much of the discussion has been. I think oddly, uh, at least in terms of the list that has been provided, search engine algorithms, social media algorithms are included here as well. And while I think unquestionably we need algorithmic transparency with respect to these companies uh, and we need to identify ways to deal with the potential for harms that are coming out of this, let's say any competitive behavior in search results, it's clearly an issue uh, that is raising some significant concerns. The notion that we would be treating that as a, as a high impact system in the same way as we would law enforcement's use of this or uh, health or health, uh, I, I mean, I just find uh, very puzzling. I'm not aware of anyone else anywhere in the world that as they work through some of these questions has seen fit to do that. Conservative MP Bernard Genereux asked about some of the problems with the Bill C-27 process. Mr. Geist, I thank the other witnesses as well. The way in the, the bill has been put forward, um, I know there have been changes that were asked for for the former bill, C-11, and the Prime Minister didn't really listen. The new version isn't much better. So now, after 18 months, we find ourselves with a bill where you have to come and testify here. And I'm asking the question, because you referred to this earlier, we're going to have met about a hundred witnesses during this process over a number of months. So how do you feel with the current process when we know that we haven't had access to the eight amendments that were proposed by the minister? We had had a few lines of it, but how do you feel about that? I would like you to tell us as a witness, not just on behalf, not on behalf of others, but 
just so that people understand the process that we are involved in, um, actually, which I consider to not be successful. There are other witnesses that will be coming later trying to talk about a bill for which we don't have the amendments. Sure. So thank you for that question. First, I'll say I think that there were improvements made from the prior bill to this bill. So, uh, I mean, I think the government did listen, and some of the things that are in this bill are better than the one that was introduced in the in, in first instance and, and really didn't go anywhere. But I, I will also say candidly, I, I, I must admit this, this is one of the hardest commi committee appearances um, that I've had in, in a very long time, in part because Typically when you, and I have appeared in omnibus legislation before, like, you know, that we get, let's say, with the Budget Implementation Act, and when you're invited, you're invited for a specific kind of provision, uh, and we recognize how that works. In this instance, we've really got two distinct bills, more, perhaps more than two, but two fun fundamentally on those two issues, plus, of course, the tribunal. You get five minutes. I recognize you don't get multiple appearances here, and you don't get multiple amount of time to deal with it. And so I do think, I, I, I look around the, even the, the witnesses, and people like Brenda McPhail and uh, Professor Krishnamurthy and my colleague Teresa Skaza and Professor Bennett have enormous expertise across the board. I mean, because there, are, there is some correlation here. And so this just strikes me as, a, as a, both a, not just an inefficient way of dealing with this, but I think, if I'm honest about it, I think an ineffective way. I'm trying to be effective with the responses that I'm giving. Um, but there is obviously a limit from a time perspective. There is a limit in terms of what I could prioritize and the kinds of issues that I tried to highlight. And something's got to give, so to speak. At the end of the day, you can't talk about, about everything. And this would have been far better, I think, had we divided the two. The bill, essentially, in fact, the provisions... You said uh, it's always better for businesses than for individuals. So what do you mean exactly? And you talked about having a balance between the two. You're saying it's always better for uh, businesses. So what do you mean exactly? So, I mean, that was a reference to say that, you know, I think, and we've heard it regularly, about a desire to, to strike a balance within these provisions. But let's recognize that once you get outside and start applying these rules, it's just not a balanced, it's not a balanced field, playing field where many individual Canadians don't know their privacy rights. Are, are, if they do, the prospect of filing a complaint, of proceeding with it, of facing all the challenges that are inherent in the system, it's not, and this is true for more than just privacy, but it's certainly true with privacy, are enormous. And we've had a system that, for the last two decades, have left people really disappointed because oftentimes they go through that process and are left with nothing, less, not, nothing other than a non-binding finding. I'm glad that this law seeks to remedy that. The enforcement side's important. But we need to realize that especially as we bring in tougher penalties, which are one of the really good things that I think is in this legislation, it also means that those that are facing those potential for penalties are going to take a much more aggressive approach in terms of, of how they deal with these various complaints. It's not a level playing field, and so that means you need to embed within the legislation uh, as much as you can to limit the ability to, for those businesses to take advantage of, of what is quite clearly a power imbalance between themselves and the individuals. Liberal MP Ryan Turnbull sought to change the tenor of the discussion a little bit by asking me what I thought was good in the bill. Mr. Geis, you, you said just moments ago that improvements have been made. You've been uh, somewhat critical today, I, I have to say. Um, I wondered if I could ask you to just acknowledge some of the improvements that have been made and maybe speak and give a little bit more detail about those so we can acknowledge that as well. Sure. Well, I want to speak specifically uh, highlighting the importance that this legislation and, and give how, how important it is to include 
far improved enforcement measures. You know, I think that the experience over the last couple of decades is that uh, for many, if there is, if, it, if all you're left with are just non-binding findings, it is very tough to enforce, and it is, I think, tough for the commissioner to get to ensure that the companies themselves are compliant, because they will naturally engage in a bit of a risk analysis, at least under the current bill, and say, okay, well, what happens uh, if I don't comply, or what happens if I push the envelope a little bit? And the answer is, well, you might face an investigation if someone realizes and files a complaint. And at worst, at least initially, all you're going to get is a non-binding finding, and you need to try to do something. And we've even seen, I can recall an instance, I believe it was with Bell, that, that rejected some of the initial findings of the commissioner until there was some pressure and they came back. So we've seen the companies take a pretty aggressive approach. I'm glad the government has seen fit to really improve on the enforcement side, both in terms of the powers the commissioner has, as well as in terms of the, the penalties that are associated with the legislation. I'm glad it's seen fit to begin to adopt some of the kinds of provisions that we've seen in Europe. It's long overdue. Uh, they're not quite the same, but the, or at least identical, but nevertheless, it moves us in a direction. So absolutely. Listen, I, you know, I think that, that there are things that improve on our existing legislation. That legislation is more than 20 years old. Um, we need to fix the legislation. But as I say, the, the point of emphasis for myself, and we've heard it from others as well, is that if you're only going to, if, you, if you're in all likelihood only fixing this bill, uh, or this legislation every 10 or 20 years, uh, you can't rest on your laurels to say, here, we got a bunch of things right, uh, when there are all sorts of other things that need fixing. Do you agree, then, that um, it's really important to see this bill through, given the fact that our legislation is 20 years old, um, recognizing for sure that we've got to have a critical lens as we debate this bill and, and certainly work to, towards strengthening it? I know you've outlined multiple ways, but what are the repercussions if this bill fails uh, which um, it has once before. So, I mean, I think we need to uh, really push forward. So could you speak to, to that? How are, how are Canadians going to be impacted if we don't have updated legislation? Uh, well, yeah. I, I'll speak candidly in telling you that with the first bill, with all due respect, the government did not move forward with it in any meaningful way at all. So, um, I mean, that's just, the, that's just the reality under under Minister Baines. Under this bill... I feel, and I can't speak for other people coming out of the privacy community, but it is a source of significant frustration that we get a bill that uh, that barely makes it through anything. This one also took a year from introduction until we're finally before committee. We've got two bills embedded or three bills embedded within the same legislation, and then the question is posed: Well, it might not be ideal, but isn't it better to ha isn't is, isn't something better than nothing? Yeah, something is better than nothing. But if we are truly going to try to to prioritize privacy as a, such a critical component, I believe that Canadians expect better. Uh, than a bill that, that doesn't really meet the kind of expectations that have been regularly identified before you. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.